Well, I don't know if you've noticed or not, but during sermon time, I often have a lot to say. Um, so much so that after 30 minutes or so, I begin to notice the watch checks and the head nods and the glassy eyes, and I begin to rush towards the conclusion. I know this about myself. I'm not afraid to talk. In fact, I enjoy talking. I like teaching. It's, it's actually my favorite part about being a pastor. But often I have so much to say that I lose coherence. I lose my ability to communicate properly. The point gets lost. One second I'm quoting the Old Testament, and then the next second I'm quoting Hockey Night in Canada. And somewhere in between, we're all thinking, how did we get what this? What was he saying again? And sometimes I forget myself. I hear it in the playback that I do for the podcast. There's these long silences where I know that in my mind I'm thinking, uh, what comes next? Uh, where am I? Sometimes there's just too much to say. I also see this when I'm lecturing a kindergarten student about some discipline issue, and I think I'm revolutionizing their worldview and making them understand their role on earth for the rest of their life and solving all their moral problems until five minutes into my eloquent speech on the ethics of throwing snow at your friend, and I look at them and they're picking their nose and playing with their shoelace and just parroting, yes, Mr. Lance, okay, Mr. Lance, I won't, Mr. Lance. And I realize that I've been lecturing myself into irrelevance. Well, yet again, just, just say what you need to say and shut up. This occasionally happens with my daughters as well. And I think it happens with Angie too. But she's more skilled at hiding when she tunes me out than those children are. Sometimes... Did you just say Angie picks her nose? Trish just said Angie picks her nose. I said she doesn't. Sometimes I just have too much to say, and apparently Trish does too. And it often leads to chaos and confusion and misrepresentation and miscommunication. Well, I have bad news and I have good news. The bad news is this exact thing is going to happen today. I have a lot of different points to make. And they're not all directly connected. But here's the good news. The good news is that, in and of itself, is an illustration of our main point of today. All these different things coming together to say one thing. See, today's passage marks one of the most critically important days in the entirety of human history. I know that sounds like an overstatement. Trust me, it's not. It's one of the high-water marks of the church, not to mention a brand new chapter in the glorious story of God saving his people. There is a lot to say about this event from a great many angles. My tongue and your ears will get quite a workout. But, as we'll see, when all of these different things to say come together, it really just leaves us with one thing to say, the ultimate thing to say. So let's read together Acts 2, verses 1 to 12. I never trust that background. <laughs> On the day of Pentecost, all the believers were meeting together in one place. Suddenly there was a sound from heaven like the roaring of a mighty windstorm, and it filled the house where they were sitting. Then what looked like flames or tongues of fire appeared and settled on each of them. And everyone present was filled with the Holy Spirit and began speaking in other languages as the Holy Spirit gave them this ability. Your translation might say in other tongues. That's a better translation. At that time there were devout Jews from every nation living in Jerusalem. When they heard the loud noise, everyone came running, and they were bewildered to hear their own languages being spoken by the believers. They were completely amazed. How can this be, they exclaimed. These people are all from Galilee, and yet we hear them speaking in our own native languages. Here we are, 
Parthians, Medes, Elamites, people from Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus in the province of Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the areas of Libya around Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. And I think it's hilarious that Luke tries to make it sound like somebody came running in and said exactly this. Hey, we're all these different kinds of people. Basically, the point is, there's people from all over the place. And we all hear these people speaking in our own languages about the wonderful things God has done. They stood there, amazed and perplexed. What can this mean? They asked each other. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is one of the most spectacular and monumental events in the history of humanity, believe it or not. It's also pretty bizarre and easy to misunderstand. So today... I have seven things to say about this passage. Remember, I said I have a lot to say? Well, there you go. Let's, let's get right into number one. The first thing to talk about is Pentecost. What was Pentecost? Well, Pentecost occurred 50 days, 50 days after the first Sunday that follows the Passover. And Passover was the biggest and most significant of the holy days. As you can see there, the word Pentecost comes from the Greek word for the number 50, Pentecostos. It's from the day uh, of Pentecost that the Pentecostal denomination gets its name. We'll probably put that together. And the Pentecostal denomination uh, has a deep reverence for the work of the Holy Spirit, and they have a heightened appreciation for charismatic gifts, such as speaking in tongues. So they named themselves after this day, which makes sense. Pentecost was a feast and a celebration celebrated by Israel, dating all the way back to the Exodus. It was known as the Feast of Weeks in Exodus 34, and the day of the first fruits in Numbers 28, since that was the day when the first fruits of the wheat harvest were presented to God. It was therefore a day that symbolized giving the best you have to your provider out of thankfulness. Um, that was the purpose, the established purpose of Pentecost. Yeah, Christy? What time of year would that have been, just so that us farmers could have some Fifty days after when we when we do Easter, it was the end of the barley harvest and the start of the wheat harvest. So, I don't know May. I I have no idea. Pentecost is Passover is usually in uh, March. Yeah, it's when we have Easter. They they have Pentecost at the same or Passover at the same time. So Pentecost is I think it's fifty days after that Sunday that follows Passover. So, May-ish? Yeah. It changes. Um, you're such a farmer nerd. I would, n I would never think of... When do they harvest the barley? <laughs> 50 days after... Too, they harvest twice a year to have two... enough sunlight to get two harvests. Okay, there you go. Where was I? What was that about losing track of what you were saying? No, it's okay. This is my fault. Okay, later in the Jewish tradition... It was reckoned that uh, Pentecost represented the anniversary of the giving to the law of the law um, to Moses on Sinai, and that's they they played with some math out of Exodus 19 to figure using moons and and all this kind of stuff to figure that Pentecost was was is actually also a celebration of when God gave the law to His people, um, and the giving of law was a gift and a judgment, two simultaneous reflections of His love and his holiness. So, that's the first thing to say about this passage. The Holy Spirit comes on the day of Pentecost, a day that commemorates God giving his law, and his people giving, in return, the best that they have back to him. Now, let's talk about the two phenomena 
that accompanied the arrival of the Holy Spirit. They occur suddenly from heaven as the faithful are gathered, uh, most likely in that mysterious upper room we talked about last week. What are the two phenomena? There's the wind and the fire. Let's talk first about the wind. Thing to say number two, wind. Why does Luke make special mention of the wind? Was it just a fat, fascinating atmospheric phenomenon? Kind of like last week we talked about the clouds. He just kind of tosses in mention of the clouds. Is that just to add historical detail? Well, no, I think that as with the clouds last week, there is more here than just a weather report. A better question than why does Luke mention the wind is why does God send the wind? What does the wind represent? The first thing to recognize is that in the Greek language, the same word is used when describing wind, breath, and spirit. It's all the same word. And it's a word that farmers are very familiar with, since it's the word that, from which the word pneumatic is derived. Pneumatic, uh, pneumatics being the use of pressurized air, wind, or breath, air, uh, in mechanics. So the Greek word for wind, breath, and spirit is pneuma. And I found a fancy way to get the Greek in there, which is great. Pneuma. Very proud of myself. <laughs> There's the Greek. Therefore, Jesus, in, uh, in John 3, verse 8, Jesus is using a play on words when he's teaching Nicodemus and he says the following. The wind, or pneuma, blows wherever it wants. Just as you can hear the wind, or pneuma, but can't tell where it comes from or where it is going, so you can't explain how people are born of the spirit, spirit pneumatos, pneuma. So wind and spirit, he, he blends them together. See, the spirit is wind, literally, in the Greek language. It's the same word. So it makes sense that the Holy Spirit blows through the room like a cyclone. It's not a gentle breeze. It's a rushing, gale-force, hurricane wind. This divine breath, or pneuma, in relation to God's creation and recreation, has a long and rich tradition. In the creation story of Genesis 2, God loves his human creations most specially. And it says in Genesis 2 that he breathed the breath of life into man's nostrils, and then they came alive. Breath, creation, pneuma. In Exodus, God's people are fleeing Egypt on their way to becoming a nation created by God to serve God. The creation of a nation. But the Red Sea is in the way. That is, until, as Moses sings in Exodus 15.8 and 15.10, that God blew with his breath, pneuma, and the waters parted. Then they were safe to go through on dry land. Once again, his beloved Israel could be saved and a nation created because of breath creation, pneuma. Later in Ezekiel 37, and we'll get there in the next couple months as, as we read through scripture, in Ezekiel 37, one of the most famous passages in all of the prophets, Ezekiel sees a valley filled with what? Dry bones, the valley of dry bones, representing a dying and faithless Israel. But God speaks through Ezekiel, saying in verse 7, that God will breathe on these bones and they will return to life. Then in verse 14 of the same chapter, it's his spirit, pneuma, again, when first it's his breath that brings life to the bones, and then in verse 14, it's his spirit that brings life to the dry bones. And once God breathes on them and shares with them his spirit, it creates, or more accurately, recreates, an entire army of living servants, where once there was only death and desolation. Again, breath, creation, pneuma. And finally, in Luke 3, 
As John the baptizer prepares to baptize Jesus, he acknowledges that a greater one is coming. And this coming one won't just baptize with water, but as it says in Luke 3, he will baptize with spirit, pneuma, and with fire. This wind will blow away the chaff, John says. The wind will blow away the chaff, the useless and lifeless part of the plant, leaving only the wheat, which is the life-giving part of the plant. Like Adam and Eve, like Israel at the Red Sea, like the dry bones in the valley, the people of God require God's pneuma if they are to experience true life. All of this say that God's breath and his spirit are intimately connected, present at times when God is creating life in a new way. His spirit, his pneuma is there when God is creating life in a new way. This is true of the first Pentecost after Jesus' resurrection as well. What new creation is God's breath, God's wind, God's spirit creating here? What is the new creation? What is the new life being injected into the dry bones of humanity in Acts 2? The church. It's the church. It is now through the church that humanity can be recreated through his Holy Spirit, his Holy Pneumatos, the divine breath bringing life to his people. Which brings me to thing number three. First, it was the wind, then it was the fire. And as we already saw John speaking in Luke 3, wind, pneuma, spirit, and fire are connected. But specifically what I want to look at is the tongues of fire, separating and resting on everyone there, men and women alike. God's presence on that day was both audible as wind and visible as fire. Remember what John mentioned, a baptism of pneuma and fire? Well, ta-da, here it is on this day, the day of Pentecost, a baptism of wind and fire. Fire has a rich history of representing God's faithful guiding presence. From the burning bush encountered by Moses, to the guiding pillar out of Egypt, to the ever-burning fire on God's altar in the tabernacle, as described in Leviticus 6, right through to Elijah's contest on Mount Carmel, to the coming baptism, described by John. Fire is God's presence in Scripture. But the special thing about this particular fire is the specific description by Luke that it's tongues of fire, split up and present over every faithful man and woman, in that fateful room. The description, calling them tongues of fire, might be a little bit of foreshadowing for the miracle that follows these miracles, that their tongues will do something remarkable. And the fact that the fire settles on each of the faithful is a fulfillment of Jesus' promise, that although the old covenant settled on a national entity, and sometimes on individual leaders in special circumstances, now the new covenant settles on every believer individually. It's not God's presence on a nation. It's God's presence in you, on you, in your hearts. The guiding and consuming presence of God is not leading a nation, no matter what some of the nations of the world will tell you. God is not leading a nation, nor is it found only in one holy place. You don't just have to go to the temple to find the burning presence of God anymore. Rather, it's leading a kingdom, not a nation, but a kingdom of individual servants who together form the new one holy place, the church. And just as he did to Israel in Exodus, he is still guiding us with his fiery presence. So this fire, it comes on each one individually, individually because that's how God will now work with his people. Not as a collection, as a nation, but each one of your hearts 
And together, we become that kingdom. We become like a nation. And his, his, his fiery presence will guide us. I think that is absolutely beautiful. His covenant is coming to life. His promises are coming to life right before their eyes. The flames over their heads. Can you just imagine being in that room and seeing that and knowing what that means? It's beautiful. And so the wind and the fire come on Pentecost. And everyone begins speaking in different languages, much to the amazement and the bewilderment of God-fearing Jews from, as Luke declares, with, you got to admit, his total hyperbole. He says they come from every nation under heaven. Well, not quite every nation. There's no Oriental people. There's no North American Aboriginal people. But every nation under heaven means all of the Jews spread throughout in the diaspora, throughout the Roman Empire. All of those people were here. And when they hear this, and when they see this, it leads to amazement and bewilderment. Let's look at verse 7, though. Notice the source of their amazement. Verse 7 says they were completely amazed. How can this be, they exclaimed. These people are all from Galilee. It's not that these men are speaking in languages they've never heard them speak before. It's not that they're looking at Peter and saying, Hey, Peter, you never sounded like a Phrygian before. How is this possible? They, they don't know who Peter is. They've never met, probably have never met Peter before. So the miracle isn't that he, he's speaking something that he's never spoken before. The miracle is that he's a backwoods, backwater yokel from Galilee who's speaking in exact dialects that they've never heard before. The amazement comes from the fact that Jews from all over the world are hearing their own unique languages being spoken by these, these Galileans. It's like when Jesus, could anything good come from Nazareth? Could any, could any Galilean be able to speak this eloquently? Galileans. As we know from Peter's experience in the courtyard, when he was busy denying that he ever knew Jesus, the Galilean accent is distinct. People pick him out as a follower of Jesus immediately because he has a Galilean accent. Galileans are kind of like the Newfies of Judea. <laughs> they, they sound funny to the other Jews, and they were kind of picked on as simple folk. I'm, I'm not saying... I don't mean to... I don't want to sound stereotypical. I'm saying... There's a pretty, simil pretty strong similarity there. If you're from Newfoundland and you're listening to this, you're wonderful. We shouldn't judge you based on your dialect, place of origin, because that's the whole point of what I'm saying here. How could such backwater yokels like these Galileans possibly speak perfect Aramaic, Aramaic like the Persians, or in the dialect of the Cyrenes on the other side of Egypt? or sound exactly like those who live in the center of the known world, the ultimate destination point in the book of Acts and the gospel in general, how could these simple Galileans speak exactly like Romans? Their astonishment at the men from Galilee is a reminder that God unexpectedly chooses the small and the simple, despite the world's misplaced obsession with greatness and power. The people, they can't believe that it's Galileans doing this, that are gifted like this that have the presence of God burning over their heads like this. They can't imagine how these people are able to sound just like them. Well, that's how God operates. The world's misplaced obsession with greatness and power doesn't understand it, and they look on it, and, and it leads to disbelief often. We'll see that next week. The people who witness this, a lot of them, 
it leads them to think that everyone here is just drunk. And we'll, we'll talk about that. But in the face of, of even incredible miracles like this, people will disbelieve because of where it comes from. That was true for these Galileans too. All right, it's fancy Bible word time. Your favorite. Today's fancy Greek word is super fun to say, so say it with me. Hi, Chloe. Say it with me. Glossolalia. Say it with me. Glossolalia. It is a very entertaining word to say. Glossolalia is the ecstatic speaking of many different tongues. It's basically the Greek word for speaking in tongues. The arrival of the Holy Spirit brings with it this bizarre gift. A gift shared by Paul himself, as he mentions uh, in 1 Corinthians. Uh, not to mention millions of other faithful Christians around the globe, through the centuries, and even today. Many of them speak in tongues. It's not something that, that our church tradition deals with very much. We don't, we're kind of hands-off when it comes to speaking in tongues, right? But it's, it's, glossolalia is something that other traditions deal with extensively. I am not a fan of grand, dismissive theological statements, so I'm not going to make one. I, what I will say about glossolalia, I will say very briefly. And it's that it would be foolish to suggest that one can only experience the indwelling of the Holy Spirit if it's accompanied by glossolalia. There are people who would say, you don't have the Holy Spirit in you unless you speak in tongues. I think that's foolish. But likewise, and this is my own tendency, it would be foolish to dismiss the phenomena as merely trumped-up human emotion running wild. That is an incredibly foolish thing to say as well, just as foolish. Speaking in tongues has an enormous footprint in Scripture, but as Paul makes clear in 1 Corinthians, it's a gift with a purpose. It was only a useful gift if there were people there to interpret it, otherwise people might think you're crazy, or, in the case of Acts 2, drunk. So my final thoughts on glossolalia, speaking in tongues, is this, that the Holy Spirit does whatever he wants. He does whatever he wants. If he wants you to experience tongues, he will allow you and let you have the gift of tongues. If he knows you, and he does, and he, he, if he knows you and thinks that that is not an important part of your conversion experience, then you won't experience speaking in tongues. That seems pretty straightforward to me. The Holy Spirit will do whatever he wants to do. If he wants to make his presence known to the gift of speaking in foreign tongues, then glory be to him. If his presence finds a home in your heart and you've never so much as spoken a single adios or konnichiwa of another language, if you don't know a single word of any other language, but you still have the Holy Spirit in you, well, then glory be to him just the same. But let's not decide that they are absolutely, absolutely necessary. And let's not declare that they are absolutely ridiculous either. Is that fair? Good. Because the other important thing I want to say about glossolalia is that it's just really fun to say. Say it with me one more time. Glossolalia. Wonderful. Next, in, in our passage, we receive a little geography lesson from Luke. Right in the heart of the most critical event in the opening chapter of the church. God-fearing Jews, the foreign faithful, and that's thing number six, the foreign faithful, they form a roll call of nations under Roman rule. From the east, uh, Parthia, Media, Elam, Mesopotamia, and Arabia are all to the east. To the west, including Egypt, Libya, Cyrene, and Crete. And the immediate area, Judea. And to the north, into Asia Minor, which is what we would call modern-day Turkey and the surrounding nations. 
places like Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, and Pamphylia. Not to mention the big R, center of the world as they knew it, Rome. All these believers have gathered as pilgrims in and around Jerusalem, probably many of them staying the 50 days from Passover to Pentecost. They've come to bring gifts and offerings to the temple, uh, to experience the presence of God, and to show their devotion. And these pilgrims, they have probably heard many Jewish passages spoken in their tongue. But these pilgrims, they have not arrived in Jerusalem expecting to hear their foreign language spoken like this. This is totally unexpected to them. Basically, this event, the day of Pentecost and the coming of the Holy Spirit, is an undoing of the curse of Babel. Are you familiar with the Babel story, the Tower of Babel? It, like this, is a pretty bizarre story. In Genesis 11, all the people spoke one language. There was a common tongue. And these people, they gathered, this is after the flood, they, they gathered and decided to make a great tower for themselves that reached to the sky. And do you notice the key phrase there? For themselves. They did this for their own glory. It was an act of sheer vanity and self-worship enabled by their ability to speak one common tongue. And so, for their own sake, God scatters them, sends them all over to the corners of the earth, speaking all these different tongues. To prevent the unity, unity that would lead to destruction, God confuses their language. Now, miscommunication reigns, preventing them from worshipping themselves. Here, at Pentecost, however, it's a reversal. Instead of scattering to the edges of the earth, People are drawn together to one place, in this case Jerusalem, together in unity. Instead of speaking one language and worshipping themselves, God allows these Galileans to speak many languages in order to allow worship of himself. In, in Babylon it was one language to worship themselves, here it's many languages to draw worship to him, to God, where, where, where it belongs. It's a reversal of the curse, and a beautiful portrait of human faithfulness, and divine grace. People from all the ends of the earth have come to Jerusalem. How appropriate that they got to hear the moment when the seeds of the gospel would, would, would take root and begin to sprout, eventually bearing fruit and spreading back out to those very ends of the earth. Into Jerusalem come the people. Out from Jerusalem goes the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection. Alright. As promised in the intro... I've spoken a lot of different things, and they aren't all related. Here's the six so far. Uh, Pentecost, the wind, the fire, the Galileans, the glossolalia, the foreign faithful. So I've said a lot of things, and they aren't all related. That in and of itself is a picture of what happened to the followers of Jesus on that beautiful day when the Holy Spirit arrived. I spoke of Pentecost here, and wind and fire there, and backwoods Galileans, and glossolalia, and foreign faithful, and... All these different things. And like the day of Pentecost, it's this whole cacophony of words. A chaotic stew of speech and dialect and languages. It's just a lot to say. But there was a point to me discussing these different scattered truths. Just as there was a point to God gifting all these people to speak in all these different ways. The arrival of the Holy Spirit was an enormous event in the birth of the church. And in that one single act... So much is revealed about the nature of how God will work with his people through his agent, the Holy Spirit. So, follow this if you can. You can, I know that you can. Okay, so, 
Even the simple are empowered, thought number four, to bring the best that they have, thought number one, in response to the gift of his presence, thought number three. The arrival of the Holy Spirit is a recreation of humanity, that's thought number two, wind. As new life explodes throughout the world, thought number six, the poor and faithful, settling on reborn individuals, thought number three, and drawing people together in his name, thought number six, in unexpected ways. Glossolalia. Let me say that whole thing without the stupid clicker thing. <laughs> Even the simple are empowered, and that is me, and that is you, to bring the best that we have in response to the gift of his presence. That's what the Holy Spirit does for us, in us, through us. The arrival of the Holy Spirit is a recreation of humanity as new life explodes throughout the world, settling on reborn individuals like you and me, and drawing people together in his name in unexpected ways. And you're thinking, why couldn't you just said that and we would be home by now? <laughs> in all of this power, in all of these tongues, and in all the wind and the fire and the chaos and the beauty, in all of these different thoughts, there is only one real point. I haven't said it yet. And that point is found hidden deep in verse 11. Verse 11 says, And we all hear these people speaking in our own languages about what? The wonderful things God has done. Maybe your translation says the mighty acts that God has done. And here's where we find the one real point. Why Pentecost? Why wind and fire? Why simple Galileans? Why the miracle of Glossolalia? Why are the foreign faithful there to hear it all? Why the sending of the Holy Spirit at all? Why the creation of the church at all? Why any of this? Because it's all for the mighty works of God to be told and spread. It's all for the glory of God. That's why any of this happens. There's all these different things I've said, all these different points, wind and fire and tongues and whatever. It all comes down to say something, and that something is, it's all for the glory of God. The reason they speak in all these bizarre tongues is for the glory of God. The, the reason the Holy Spirit comes in wind and in fire is for the glory of God. The reason all these faithful Jews from all over the known world are there is for the glory of God. The reason it happens on the day of Pentecost is for the glory of God. All of these thoughts are variations of one single thought. Just like all those diverse languages, we're really just speaking the same thing. The mighty, wonderful, glorious acts of God. It's all for Him. It's all for His glory. That's why the Spirit came to us. That's why the Spirit comes to us and lives in us now. It's not for us. Well, it becomes for us. We get the benefit of His presence. But it's not for us. He does all of this in all these different ways for His glory. Because he deserves it. So yeah, I know I have a lot to say. Just like they did on Pentecost. But in all these different things, it can be distilled down to one thing. His mighty works bringing him glory. I think we'll see that throughout the whole rest of Acts. That everything the Holy Spirit does, leads his people to do, is for the glory of the Father. It's all for his kingdom and for his glory. Let's pray. Father, you say a lot of things to us. Uh, we miss most of it, and we don't understand a lot of it. But you say a lot to us, and there's a lot to be heard and understood here in this passage. But Father, I pray that we don't miss the most important point, and that is your glory above all things. 
your glory is, is what we should be striving for. Your glory is why you've come to us. Your glory is why you empower us and fill us with, um, with gifts and with abilities. It's all for your glory. Father, we, we do a very poor job of acknowledging this and living this out. But today, we here, gathered in your presence, with your Holy Spirit like a fire inside of us, we say together that what we do is for your glory. What we believe, what we think, what we say, what we do is all for you. Help us to be people who tell of your mighty acts and who live out your mighty acts in thankfulness and uh, in recognition that you are the one who deserves the glory for them. Yeah. I pray all these things in your name. Amen. Yes, Chloe. Yes. Yes. <laughs> all right. Have a great week, everyone.